Welcome to Russian History Retold, Episode 221, The Great Battles of Russian History, Part 2. Last time, we covered the first six of what I believe are the most critical battles in early Russian history. Today, we will cover the last six, beginning with the one that catapulted Russia under Peter the Great into the pantheon of great European powers, Poltava. Before we get into that, I wanted to mention, before someone notices, that I have not included any battles that occurred in the Crimean War. I have two reasons. One, I actually covered the war pretty extensively in the past. Secondly, there wasn't one battle that changed the outcome, except maybe the siege of Sebastopol. The battles I chose are, in my opinion, more significant in their effect on the history of Russia. Now, on to Poltava. Peter the Great had just returned from his great embassy in 1698, and despite all the expectations, he had little to show for the two-year tour. Peter wanted to have other European nations join forces with him against the Ottoman Empire. However, they were all reluctant to do so for various reasons. One of the main ones was their belief that Russia was a paper tiger and not much of a major power. This forced Peter's hand to sign a peace treaty with the Ottomans after the Russo-Turkish War of 1686-1700. to The Treaty of Constantinople gave Azov, the Taganrog Fortress, Pavlovsk, and Mius to Russia and established a Russian ambassador in Constantinople. It also freed Peter to concentrate on his enemy to the north and west, Sweden. While returning from the great embassy, Tsar Peter met with King Augustus II of Poland-Lithuania. This would be the beginning of an impending alliance. The Great Northern War, which began on February 22, 1700, would envelop both Russia and Sweden for the next 21 years. The war began when a coalition of Denmark-Norway, Saxony, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, and Russia sensed weakness within the Swedish Empire due to their king being a young man of a mere 18 years of age, Charles XII. They declared war, believing that they could quickly weaken their mutual enemy. They were to be sorely mistaken. The first few years of fighting was all Sweden. They dispatched the Russians and the Danes at the battles of Travendal in August 1700 and Narva on November 30th the same year. Narva was a particularly stinging loss for the Russian Tsar Peter the Great. But, as was the case with Peter, he would learn from the failures, especially that one. There, Peter had superiority in numbers, but lacked the military skills to defeat the Swedes. What followed Narva was a gross error in judgment by Swedish King Charles II. He viewed the Russians with disdain and neglected them for the next few years, focusing instead on Poland. This costly mistake allowed Peter to regroup as Charles took six whole years to subdue the Poles. Had he gone after Russia, he may well have scored a knockout blow. So you may be wondering, why isn't Narva on my list of greatest battles? Actually, 
it wasn't that consequential, and its loss set up the Battle of Poltava. For six years, Peter had wholly revamped his army and artillery. The transformation of the Russian military was drastic, something that would not be seen until Stalin did the same during the Great Patriotic War, also known as World War II. A draft was instituted, church bells were melted to produce cannons, the administration of the army was completely reconstructed, and the finances of Russia, especially taxation, were stretched to the limit. In 1708, Charles XII decided to invade Russia, heading towards Moscow. However, many believe that the Swedish king made yet another blunder, when instead of heading straight to the Russian capital, he diverted his men south into Ukraine, thinking that they could live off the land, rest, and build up his army once Cossack hetman Ivan Mespa decided to join up with the Swedes. Quite a few things went wrong here. Mezpa could only muster 2,000 men, which helped the 50,000 Swedes, but was nowhere near what was expected. At the Battle of Lesnaya, the Russians captured the Swedish supply train just prior to the particularly brutal winter of 1708-09. This severely weakened the opposing army, so that when they made it to the field at Poltava, they were down to 22 or 28,000 men, depending on which estimate you see. The Russians, they were up to 40,000 trained men. And instead of backing off and reinforcing his army, Charles made his way toward Moscow. Leading up to the Battle of Poltava, Peter decided to make nice with the Greeks, I mean the Turks again, who in turn forbade the Crimean Cossacks from siding with the Swedes. This freed up the Russian south from any attacks. The fortress of Poltava had been attacked by the Swedish army and held up far better than Charles had expected. By the time the Russian relief troops arrived, the Swedes were beginning to run low on ammunition and food. Then, on June 17, 1709, a sniper's bullet hit the King of Sweden. Peter heard about this and decided that now was the time to attack. The following morning, Charles decided to attack earlier, even though he was injured, but he was met with stiff resistance that he did not think would be as strong as it was. In one of those quote-unquote what-the-hell moments of history, instead of backing off and reassessing the situation, Charles, due to his deep disdain for the Russians and the effectiveness of their military, went back on the offensive. This was to prove to be his undoing. By noon, the route was on, and Charles had to run for his life. He headed to the Ottoman camp and asked for asylum. Now, remember last time when I said that there was a battle that, had it gone differently, Russia may not have existed in the way we see it today? Well, the next conflict would have utterly changed history. The Battle of the River Pruth. The Russians had just defeated their archenemies, the Swedes, decisively. Instead of consolidating his gains, Peter decided to press his luck and declare war on the Turks yet again in 1711. If he failed, and he did, it could mean his death, 
the end of the reforms he put in place, and quite possibly the death of what we know today as Russia. Peter wanted Charles II, and the Ottomans had him in their control, but they refused to turn him over to Russia. This caused the Tsar to put together an army of about 38,000 men to head toward Turkish territory. The Ottomans had gathered 200,000 troops to counter Peter. They had destroyed all the crops available to the invaders, leaving them starving. The Turks, who were by now were a shadow of their former strength, attacked the Russians, who they outnumbered five to one. Amazingly, they were rebuffed. This caused panic in the Ottoman ranks, especially by Grand Vizier Baltaji Mehmet. He immediately began negotiations with Peter, allowing him and his army to retreat back to Russia. Now, had they laid siege to the hungry troops, they could have totally and easily crushed their army, killed Peter, or taken him hostage, and changed the very nature of his vision of Russia. While the mood in Constantinople was that of elation when they heard of their army's victory, it turned to disgust when they learned of the missed opportunity. It would cost the Grand Vizier his life. There were a lot of angry people back home in Moscow and St. Petersburg, and more than a few wanted to remove Peter from the throne and replace him with his more conservative and easier-to-manipulate son, Alexis. They would have stopped any reforms and tried returning to their old ways. This would have left them vulnerable when Napoleon decided to invade Russia just a hundred years later. Poland may have decided to invade as well, as the Ottomans changing the country's borders and likely halting their inevitable expansion. The Ottomans and the Russians signed yet another treaty post-Pruth, the Treaty of Andrianople in 1713. With this miracle behind him, Peter would continue his westernization program, most of which was on the backs of the peasants. There are some estimates that Peter's wars and the building of St. Petersburg would cost the lives of 20% of the Russian people. Had he been crushed at Pruth, this would have been avoided, but at what future consequence? The next significant conflict was the Siege of Ismail, which took place in 1790. It is one of Russia's least talked about significant victories. Now, Ismail was thought to be an impenetrable fortress. It was a stronghold of the Ottomans in the Black Sea, currently part of Ukraine. However, that is in serious doubt due to the Russian invasion. Now, go back a little bit. In 1770, Russian General Nicholas Repnin took the fortress of Ismail during the Russo-Turkish War of 1768-74. It was returned to the Ottoman Empire as part of the Treaty of Kukuk Kanarka, which was signed on July 21, 1774. Swearing that the fort would never be retaken, the Turks decided to heavily reinforce Ismail and place 40,000 soldiers within its walls. They were convinced that there was no way that the town could ever be overrun by Russian troops. This feeling of invincibility would, would meet its match with one of the greatest generals in world history, Alexander Suvorov. In 
Suvorov approached the fortress of Ishmael in late 1790 after defeating the Turks at Kinburn, Ochakov, and Foksani. Ochakov was a fortress under siege earlier, beginning in May 1790, by the forces led by Grigory Potemkin and Alexander Suvorov. Potemkin was content with keeping the fort surrounded, but Suvorov furiously demanded that the city be stormed by his troops. Finally, disease began to weaken both sides, and due to impending cold weather coming, Suvorov was given the green light to advance into the fortress. Over 20,000 Turkish men were killed in the ensuing fight, which occurred on December 6th. Amazingly, only a 1,000 Russians lost their lives. It was a stunning victory for the Russians and was the forecast of things to come at Ismail. The siege of Ismail began in March of 1790. The defenders were surrounded by a contingent of Suvorov's men on land and a flotilla commanded by Spanish Admiral José de Ribas, also known as Iosif Mihailovich de Ribas. The men inside the fortress were hoping for reinforcements. Still, with fighting going on on multiple fronts, the Ottoman army was stretched too thin to be of any help. After defeating the Turks at Ochakov, Suvorov took 31,000 men and began the assault on the fortress on December 11, 1790, at about 5.30 a.m., after bombarding the walls for the previous two and a half hours. By 8 a.m., the walls had been breached and the Russian army had entered the city. While the fighting was ferocious, by the end of the day, over 26,000 Turks lay dead, with 9,600 being taken prisoner. On the other hand, the Russians only suffered about 4,300 casualties, with 1,815 dead. Because of this resounding victory, the official national anthem of Russia was produced, known as Let the Thunder of Victory Rumble. The lyrics were written by Russian Gavrila Derzhavin and the music by composer Osip Kozlovsky. It would remain the anthem until 1833, which was replaced then by God Save the Tsar. Our next conflict is one of the most famous of all, the Battle of Borodino. It would mark the end of Napoleon Bonaparte's invasion of Russia and would thrust the country into the world's spotlight. In the spring of 1812, Napoleon and his Grand Armée of 612,000 men were poised to march toward Moscow and bring an end to Russian defiance. By June 4th, the invasion began via a 300-mile or 480-kilometer front. The supply train was massive, consisting of over 25,000 vehicles. The army was so huge that communications were almost impossible to coordinate attacks and defense. Under the leadership of Tsar Alexander I and his lead general, Mikhail Kutuzov, the Russians refused to be drawn into pitched battle, only engaging Napoleon briefly at Smolensk. Within three months of crossing the Russian border, Napoleon had lost one-third of his Grand Armée due to the lack of food, disease, and harassing attacks by the Russian army. Still, 
Napoleon thought so little of the Russian army that he believed he could trounce them if he could just get them to fight. His disdain for the Russians was similar to the previous guy who attempted to invade, Charles XII of Sweden. Another reason for his self-confidence was his overwhelming belief that the Russian peasants would somehow jump at the possibility of throwing off the oppression of the Tsar and the nobility, much as the French peasants did during the French Revolution. This was a terrible miscalculation. The Russians retreated throughout the summer, slowly but steadily, towards an area that suited defensive stand. It was smaller than the usual battlefield between the towns of Smolensk and Moscow. Eight square miles of undulating hills and crisscrossed by numerous streams with steep banks. It was ideal for 120,000 men, 17,000 regular cavalry, along with 7,000 Cossacks to stop, or at least halt for a while, Napoleon's advance. The width of the Russian lines has been estimated to be about five miles long. Napoleon, by this time, was a shadow of his physical former self. He was getting fat, as well as losing that sharpness of mind that allowed him to defeat almost every army thrown at him over the past decade. Still, he was a formidable foe. On September 6th, he began to inspect the field in anticipation of a fight the next day. Napoleon had about 165,000 men at his disposal, but many were tired and sick from the march. The French artillery began shelling the Russian lines at 6 a.m. on September 7, 1812. Napoleon believed that this would cause the Russians to wilt, but strangely enough, they remained unfazed. The great redoubt that Kutuzov had constructed proved for the time being to be unassailable. Because of this, the Russian general could move more men into more vulnerable positions, making the French advance harder than expected. By late in the day, though, the Great Redoubt fell, and the battle would begin to come to an end. The Russians began to retreat, but amazingly they halted at the ridgeline above the fields of Borodino and prepared to do battle again. Napoleon was stunned. Instead of moving against his enemy, he decided to stay where he was. Napoleon was said to have written in his memoirs the following, quote, The most terrible of all my battles was the one before Moscow. The French showed themselves worthy of victory, but the Russians showed themselves worthy of being invincible. The cost in human lives at Bordino was staggering. The Russians lost 44,000 men, while the French lost 30,000. 47 French generals lost their lives, with the Russians suffering similar losses. Post-Borodino, Kutuzov retreated past Moscow, leaving the city to the French. The town was burned to the ground within four days of the French entering. This caused Napoleon to begin to retreat back to Poland. The Russians also turned around and began harassing the increasingly dwindling forces of the Grand Armée. The final remnants of that immense force that entered Russia were down to about 13,000 men. Borodino had marked the beginning of the end of Napoleon, just as it had done in Charles XII of Sweden 
and later Adolf Hitler, the Russian winter and their fighting spirit turned all three of these invasions back. As Chandler puts it in his book on the Napoleonic Wars, quote, It is quite possible that the French retreat from Moscow is the best-known military disaster in recorded human history. The scale is epic, the suffering incalculable, the outcome catastrophic. Borodino was the catalyst of this outcome. Next, we're going to stay in the same year, but move to a different war, the Russo-Persian War of 1804 to 1830 and the Battle of Aslan-Duz. It is very likely that this is the most unknown and most obscure of the many important battles in Russian history. But nonetheless, it was imperative, as well as being an improbable victory for the Russian forces. Aslanduz sits on the northern bank of the Aras River in what is now Azerbaijan. The Russo-Persian War was fought because of territorial disputes in the area that is now Georgia and Azerbaijan. The new Persian king, Fath Ali Shah Qajar, wanted to reclaim the northern regions that were annexed by Tsar Paul after the previous Russo-Persian War of 1796. On the Russian side, we had Alexander I, who was a new leader at the same time. Qajar was well aware of Napoleon's impending invasion of Russia and knew that the forces that could be sent against him were far smaller than the Russians would have liked. He knew that if the French were not engaging the Russians, the Persian army would have stood no chance. Qajar overestimated his fighting forces and vastly underestimated his enemy's ability. In 1810, the Persians declared a holy war, a jihad, against Russia, hoping this would improve their chances of victory. Unfortunately for them, the Russians were not only better trained, but they had a vastly superior weaponry at their disposal. At this time, the Russians were at peace with the French, which greatly distressed the British. In addition, Persia was near one of the crown jewels of English holdings, India. The British were concerned when the French made inroads to the Persians diplomatically. Napoleon would use the conflict between Russia and Persia to tie down some of the soon-to-be enemy. Russia knew that it had to protect its southern flank from the Persians. Still, they also knew that they were a far stronger military than Persia's. While the Russians were, for the most part, successful of defeating more significant numbers of men thrown at them, the Battle of Aslanduz told the Persians that they had little to no chance of beating their far larger adversary. On October 31, 1812, General Pyotr Kotlyarovsky led the 1,500 men and 500 irregular cavalry with six cannons against the forces led by Abbas Mizra. He had over 10,000 men, 20,000 irregular cavalry, and 42 cannons at his disposal. This gave the Persians a 15-to-1 advantage in troop strength. However, it would be all for naught. In the late evening of October 31, 1812, General Pyotr Kotlyarevsky ordered the attack to commence. Catching the Persians asleep, they captured the fortress, killing 2,000 while only suffering 28 deaths. This stunning victory had shaken the Persian leadership 
And with the subsequent loss at the siege of Lankaran, they knew that the end was at hand. Lankaran would show a cruel streak by the Russians that would continue for centuries. No prisoners were taken. Everyone who wasn't killed at the battle was executed afterwards. The Battle of Aslanduz paved the way for the Treaty of Gulistan, which was signed in 1813. Georgia was now in the hands of the Russian Empire, not to be freed until the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. Our last battle is one of the ones that would help to topple the Romanov dynasty, the Battle of Tsushima. Fought on May 27th to the 28th, 1905, it was part of the Russo-Japanese War. To claim that it was one of the stupidest engagements of any Russian war is to underestimate the idiocy of what happened. The Russians, led by Tsar Nicholas II and his uncles, believed the Japanese to be an inferior race, incapable of defeating God's country, Russia. They would send a large fleet of ships from the Baltic Sea to Korea, an 18,000-mile or 33,000-kilometer voyage. This trip would take seven months to complete, exhausting the men and giving the Japanese ample time to plan their strategy. The battle was so important that Sir George Sydenham, Clark wrote in 1906, quote, The Battle of Tsushima is by far the greatest and most important naval event since Trafalgar. The sheer lunacy of thinking that you could sail halfway around the world at that time and fight a naval battle is baffling, but given the mindset of superiority, it's not surprising. What precipitated the Russo-Japanese War was the pressure put on Japan after it had defeated China in a war over territory in Korea. They were forced to give up the strategic harbor at Port Arthur, which the Russians took quick advantage of. The Japanese felt humiliated, with most of their anger directed at the Russians. In 1904, the Japanese tried negotiating with the Russians so that they could avail themselves of the raw materials that they needed from Manchuria. Japan was, and still is, a resource-poor nation. China had all the riches it required, but the European powers kept them at bay time and time again. By late 1904, they had had enough. But early, they decided that the Japanese would attack on February 8, 1904, at Port Arthur. The following morning, they attacked Russian ships in the harbor of Inchon. Russian fleet commander Admiral Stepan Makarov prepared to attack the Japanese. But his ship hit a mine, killing him and sending the boat to the bottom of the harbor. He had a chance to stop that war right then, but his death stopped the advance because the Japanese were suffering some horrendous losses. But his replacement, now scared of meeting the same fate, decided to do nothing. Within weeks, the entirety of the Russian Pacific fleet had been sunk. Nicholas II decided to seek revenge by sending his Baltic fleet. During the trip, they managed to fire upon a British fishing ship, sinking it and almost causing a war with Great Britain. But finally, on May 14, 1905, the Russians made it to French Indochina, 
where they fueled up and headed for Vladivostok. Here is where they made a fatal mistake. Instead of looping around Japan to make it to their port, they decided to go through the Straits of Tsushima instead. Admiral Tojo of Japan anticipated the move and set up his fleet to meet them at a location that would give him a considerable advantage. Before the battle, unlike their Russian counterparts, the Japanese Navy had undergone a massive upgrade. Their guns could fire shells far further, and their ships were much faster and much more maneuverable. Russian Admiral Rozhdin Zvensky had one mission, to make it to Vladivostok. Togo had one task, to engage the Russian fleet and to destroy them. The ensuing route was one of world's history's most significant naval defeats. While the Japanese lost a thousand men and three torpedo boats, the Russian losses were staggering. They lost 10,000 men, six battleships, four cruisers, and seven destroyers. After losing at the Battle of Mukden in February 1905, and this humiliating defeat on May 27th, the Russians were forced to sue for peace. The Treaty of Portsmouth was a bitter pill for the Japanese, which led to a poor relationship between the U.S. and Japan, as United States President Theodore Roosevelt forced the treaty on the victors. This would have repercussions leading to the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor decades later. As for Russia, it would have dire consequences for Nicholas II. Having already been battered by the disaster at Kodinka at the Tsar's coronation and then bloody Sunday debacle in 1905, it was becoming increasingly apparent that Nicholas II was not the man to lead Russia. Moreover, the Battle of Tsushima showed that Russia was not a great power anymore. It was indeed a paper tiger. It was one of the triggers that would lead to the revolution of 1917 and that would end the reign of the Romanovs. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Join me next time when I cover, in a four-part series, one of the most tragic events in Soviet history, the Siege of Leningrad. So, until next time, до свидания и спасибо большое.